0: trying this I don't know if it's gonna work but I am trying to record an episode while I drive so the audio quality might be terrible I might sound crazy I probably should just listen to the last couple seconds I've recorded and see how they sound so I'm gonna do that now. It has been a motto that I gave to myself when I became sober in March of 2017, which is, I put, I made it uh, my the background on my phone so that I see it every fucking day. And that motto is, all you have to do today is show up. So I gave myself permission when I was in my newly found sobriety in March 2017 that I could be late, that I could be um, frazzled and unkempt, I could be grumpy or non-participatory or whatever, but I still had to show up to the places I was required. So I wasn't asking myself for perfection. I wasn't even asking myself for timeliness, which is something I, I've been working on and, and getting much, much better at as I make it a, a, a daily habit. But um, I had to show up and I was showing up, not for the other people, not out of a sense of obligation to others, but for myself. Just like no one is going, you know, if you have a big, a big meeting and it, for some God awful reason, it's at 7 a.m. It's nobody else's job to wake you up to get you to that meeting on time. It's your job. And while again, I know this gets uncomfortably close to bootstraps territory where we start to talk about, you know, dependence, codependence, interdependence, it all kind of can feel very tangled. And oftentimes people who are functioning in a place of codependence rather than interdependence, codependent behaviors mean you are everybody's problems is everybody's problems right like nobody is self-sufficient and nobody is responsible for their their themselves and their needs being met and what happens is that can get a bit twisted and so you are constantly under a state of obligation to meet other people's needs and to put your own aside and interdependence is where we all function and, and manage our own needs and help each other when we are able. And we do not ask others to help us when they are not able. And uh, alcohol use, substance use disorder, um, and a lot of mental health stuff are all very closely tied to dependence and attachment, right? And so um, when it comes to sobriety, The first, one of the first things you really have to chip away at is any of your own codependent tendencies, your own tendencies to blame others. You know, I've had sobriety friends tell me that they didn't quit drinking until a doctor told them they were gonna die. I've had sobriety friends tell me, you know, I waited for someone to ask me to stop drinking and nobody ever did. I had to stop because it was my decision, for me. And the truth is, that whether you have a substance use disorder because of one reason or another, it isn't anybody else's fault, nor is it their problem to manage. But when we are raised in codependent families of origin, for example, often we learn from a parent that their needs are our are, are responsibility, that our other family members' needs are our responsibility, and that we are expected to put our own needs aside and deal with the needs of others. So a good example would be dad and mom in a codependent family uh, are addicted, and because dad and mom are addicted, sibling A now becomes responsible to take care of sibling B who is younger and needs all the care that a child needs in order to go about a day, you know, wake them up, eat them breakfast, pack their lunch, get them dressed. And so now sibling A is so busy taking care of these needs for sibling B, that sibling A goes to school without their backpack, and doesn't have the homework done they need done, and doesn't have you know, snow pants on and isn't allowed to go to recess. So that's a classic example of how a person, two people, two children, two minor dependents, can learn codependence from such a foundational young age that they never get the chance to function And and live in a functional family unit, you know, where, you know, perhaps mom and dad help their children, remind them of the things that, their their habits that they're still building because kids need to do things, you know, literally a thousand times before they remember to do it themselves. And you know what? At the end of the day, even in families where the codependence isn't addiction-centered, you know, we can often have this kind of dysfunction. So an example would be in my, I mentioned attachment. There's different kinds of attachment, okay? There's secure attachment, which is attachment that even when it's, even when it's withdrawn, the person or child, you know, is secure in knowing that the person that they are attached to will come back. There's no anxiety about separation because they know that when you know mom or dad go to work, they're gonna come back at the end of the day and pick them up from school. Insecure attachment is the kind of attachment that develops when you aren't ever given anything consistently growing up. You're not nurtured in the way that you need as a child and often leads to anxiety. It leads to worry. It leads to, um, you know, it leads to feeling like everybody's going to leave you, you're gonna be all alone. It leads to um, worrying about the other person when they're not present up with disaster scenarios or even just not wanting to make attachments because you don't trust and feel safe within any attachments. So I know that's a lot of stuff and and very likely stuff you're already familiar with, possibly overly familiar with, but it is all the kind of work that we each have to do on our own and you know what? I'm sure there's people who are securely attached, non-codependent, you know, with good self-esteem, well-functioning, who this work isn't really that useful for. And they are able to function in their life just fine and they don't really need to delve into these subjects. I'm just not entirely certain who those people are because I don't know that I've met them. I am always a little jealous of well-adjusted people, which is how I know that I myself am not particularly well-adjusted, and that's okay. At the end of the day, if you're going to show up for anybody, show up for yourself. If you go somewhere, be there, be present, connect with the people in front of your face. Don't get distracted by your phone or by worries that are taking you out of the moment. Anxiety is really, really, really good at taking us out of the present and taking us out of our bodies. Even just disassociation, something that anyone who's gone through any kind of trauma, you know, uh, trauma from violence, medical trauma... Uh, disassociation is something we learn as a means to manage pain, to manage fear, to manage intense, overwhelming emotions or situations. And so, disassociation is like this really easygoing, sort of floaty feeling we learn to, to reach out to where we, we kind of separate ourselves from our body. And so, people who like tend to disassociate, which I do, you know they can be less focused. They can um, be easily distracted or prone to daydreaming. They can uh, get hyper focus, which is also something that people with ADHD uh, suffer from a lot. Um, which is why I thought I have ADHD. The verdict's still out on whether I have ADHD or not. I'm. I have. I have the symptoms, but at a subclinical level. If you want to know precisely. Um, wanting to always play a video game or scroll through Instagram compulsively or do anything that takes us out of the present that can all be forms of disassociation and and to be in the present is to really have to sit with yourself and face today and face what today's challenges are and I find that most of the struggles I have in a given day are all surrounding these things. It's procrastinating, it's the gnawing feeling in my gut of all the things I know I should do and I don't want to do and I have to do and I'm going to find a way not to do them. Procrastination is huge. But the procrastination is a weird beast because it convinces your brain that it is delaying pain when it is actually increasing pain, aggravation, and anxiety. And the best way to get around that is to just do the thing that you're supposed to be doing for a very small amount of time. Once you start, you will usually finish. If you only do 15 minutes, you're still better off than when you began, which is with zero minutes completed. I know that things got a little deep in this episode. I guess driving puts me in a state... A state of pondering, a state of reflection, a little bit of self-hypnosis, just thinking about, you know, where I'm at, where I want to be. And that's the other thing, you know, to be in the present isn't to ignore the future. You do have to plan ahead, but you have to do the planning ahead in a way that doesn't turn into escapism. You know, or daydreaming. If you're a dreamer, if you're a dreamy person, you know, you can't fantasize about the future where all your problems magically go away and you lose 40 pounds and you um, get the dream job without doing anything to get it and um, all your other issues go away. You really, really have to Live for today and plan for tomorrow. Those two things go hand in hand. If you can save yourself any kind of aggravation or exhaustion down the road, if there's a way to preempt, it, preempt any discomfort or, or issue, then do it. I think putting things off or functioning in a state of denial about what your needs are, it's only gonna come back to get you. And you can try and find solutions, but if they're not the right solutions, you're always gonna come back to the same default state of being. If there's something in your life that you need to work at or that needs to change, You can fix literally everything else in your life and you're still going to have this state of unease with the one thing lingering and nagging at you. Nothing's going to be perfect. Perfection is not the goal. Putting one foot in front of the other is the goal. And every day that we put one foot in front of the other, we start to track some distance. And we start to make some forward movement but if you're stuck and you feel lost and you feel hopeless ask yourself what can I do right now to show up for myself in the future instead of worrying about the future about the things you can't control or the things that are unknown and can't be known yet say to yourself well what can I do to be proactive you know if you know that you're going to be moving, pack one box. If you know that you have a big project, and you know the project is going to be due in two months and it's stressing you out, we'll get a binder. Start putting together the table of contents. You don't have to do the whole thing today. Get get cracking on it. Things are always going to happen that we cannot anticipate. And nothing has, I've learned, if I've learned nothing from my students thus far, it's that the people who panic when something that they did not anticipate happens, those are the people who struggle and have the hardest time. And the people who put their heads down and just power through are the ones who say, oh, that wasn't so bad. You know, it was tough for a minute there when my computer wasn't working, but I got through it. The people who click and click and are anxious and are like, oh my God, my computer isn't working. Those are the people who really suffer and say that was, that was a really difficult test. I didn't like it. Now things are gonna come up all the time we can't control and things are happening to everyone around us all the time everyone is experiencing some kind of tension or stress or worry or grief or distress or pain or suffering we all every single one of us are nobody I mean somebody might have a good day today, but nobody has a perfect life. Nobody has a perfect lifetime. Nobody has a perfect week, you know, and the people who manage to tolerate it better are the people who just put their heads down and plod on, you know, like a tired donkey climbing up the side of the Grand Canyon, you know? They don't get stressed out about how tall it is and how far they have to go. They just keep putting one little clip cloppy hoof in front of the other. I'm excited. I'm getting excited for my trip to Amsterdam. Uh, we are about a month out, I would say. About a month away. Four weeks. A lot of stuff that's going to happen between now and then. Uh school-wise, life-wise, but I think I've kind of decided on a theme other than just like family hangouts with my cousin Emily and my sister. I feel like my theme for this trip, the thing that's really drawing me to Amsterdam and the Netherlands and that the thing that I'm the most interested in um, exploring is like Dutch darkness okay like um, they have there's a lot of history in the Netherlands obviously going back hundreds and hundreds of years but you know the things that they have gone through you know the plagues the, uh, the history of uh, ergot ergot poisoning, which was the the mold that grew on rye that caused all kinds of chaos and possibly inspired Hieronymus Bosch, his incredibly trippy and terrifying artwork. I want to go to the town he's from, where Bosch is from. I want to, apparently all of his existing works, which there are not many, Nearly all of his existing uh, triptychs are in Spain because Philip II snagged them all away. Uh, but I, I do, I'm really drawn. Well, you know what? I listened to it and it sounded okay. There's a little bit of traffic noise. I don't know why I'm telling you that. You know that. Um, so I'm heading into Toronto and I thought I would try and record because this is. Coincidentally, uh, I'm actually heading to Toronto uh, to see my beautiful, wonderful, talented, amazing, super funny friend Ava Julian who is in a stopover. She's normally based out of Vancouver these days or Vancouver as she prefers to call it and um, she's uh, got a, a brief stopover in Toronto uh, en route coming back from uh, I won't say where or what because I don't know, I don't know if she, I'm allowed to disclose it, but let's just say that Ava's doing well for herself, okay? She's getting work. She's killing it. I'm proud of her. Coincidentally, it is also tonight the 10-year anniversary of Comedy Bar. And if you have not lived in Toronto or been involved in the comedy scene, <clears throat> Comedy Bar is uh, now a renowned institution, uh it is a bar in a basement in my old neighborhood. When I first moved to Toronto in 2006, Comedy Bar was not there yet, but I lived in the neighborhood where Comedy Bar soon would be. And I started going to Comedy Bar before it actually officially opened for about I want to say Four months, maybe longer, before their official opening, Comedy Bar was sort of had a soft open. So they were open but they weren't really open. You know what I'm saying? They would do shows there. They didn't really have a proper bar yet. They just had kind of a cart. The, uh, the entire building was under construction. It had formerly been an Eritrean restaurant. Eritrea being the tiny island near Ethiopia. It's an island, right? <laughs> Fuck, maybe it's not. Eritrea, uh, not to be confused with Ethiopia, but it is closely associated with e- Ethiopia, much like Labrador is always associated with Newfoundland. Now, the bar was in dire... Uh, physical straights when they first uh, opened. They had a lot of construction going on. They didn't have the washrooms quite ready yet. So there was just a single stall, kind of slop bucket uh, bathroom. And I started going, and here's the thing. I wasn't performing comedy yet. I had gone to New York and right around the time that they did their soft open, And I had seen some improv with some friends from uh, internet. Some internet friends from uh, the website Metafilter. A lot of my longtime pals are from Metafilter. I have internet friends that I've had near and dear to my heart for well over a decade. And a bunch of us went to see some shows at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater at their original location. And when I came back, I said, oh, I should try and check out more comedy because that was really fun. And then I was also going to start taking classes, which I did kind of around the same time. But I started going to comedy bar shows and there were some weird, like, Pat Thornton and Bob Kerr, I want to say, had a, who are both stand-up, very, very funny stand-up comedians from Toronto. Uh, They had a very, very weird late night stand-up show and generally there was only ever, like, three people in the audience and sometimes four comics on the show, Uh, I started seeing a group called Project Project, which was like the traveling Wilburys of Toronto Improv. Every single person in Project Project is an enormous talent. Some gone on to uh, be leaders in the community, and they were all very, very good. And I did a lot of workshops and stuff with them. So Comedy Bar is very near and dear to my heart uh, as a place because I I lived in the neighborhood for years after. I kind of sublet around. I probably had about five different apartments all within a couple blocks of Comedy Bar. But it's where I met my first comedy friends. It's where I met my future improv troupe uh, that I would start B. Arthur, which was a 10-woman improv group, which is exactly as much of a scheduling nightmare as it sounds like. Some of those people, like Ava Julian, Kayla Dyke, Arlie Curran, Aaron Rodgers. These people still near and dear loves. To me, everybody in the group was incessantly talented. And also, uh, our shows were constantly a shit show. Always a shit show. Too many people. Too much talking. But we had a lot of energy. And we won the Toronto Improv Cage Match. uh, Because it's, it's kind of a numbers game. Uh, 10 super babes on a team is guaranteed to get you the votes, that's all I'm saying. If anyone's trying to win a comedy competition that involves audience voting, that is the secret to doing it. Um, So one thing that happened at Comedy Bar that was, I would say, formative uh, moment for me, but maybe meant absolutely nothing to the other person involved one point, I was standing in line to get into a show or to get into the washroom. This is before they had the full bathrooms open and the full theater space sorted out and everything was kind of a junkyard. I was standing in line behind a man who was one of the Skechersons and a uh, very funny guy, very talented man, uh, Cole Osborne. He and Norm Souza always were getting up to tricks together at the time. I'm not sure if they're still performing together, but it was always a fun time. So we were in standing line, in in line to go to the washroom, and he turned around and just to make idle conversation, he said, "Oh, are you a comedian?" And I said, "No." He's like, "Have you ever performed?" And I said, "No." He's like, "Don't worry, you will." And if you know Cole, he's kind of a gruff. He's just like, he's like a sincere bro, if that if that makes sense to you. He's uh. He's got a he's got a good good spirit about him, but a lot of sincerity. Not a bro as a slur, a bro as a compliment. Uh, but that little statement to me, it stuck with me. It's been ten years since he said that, and I don't talk to Cole Osborne. He's a great guy, but I don't. You know, I'm not in contact with him. But I just want to say, sometimes those little moments of generosity where something means nothing to you you know it's like throwing someone a dollar who's begging for change it means nothing to you but it can mean a lot to somebody else even if they don't necessarily realize it at the time and for me I didn't know when he said that that it was gonna stick with me all these time all this time but he was right I did get up on on many many occasions I got up for the first time to do improv. I was scared out of my fucking mind. I'd never performed ever. I'd had some really brutal amount of rejection and kind of general mockery at past attempts to do performances. So to get up and do improv and then eventually storytelling and stand-up was huge for me. And a lot of the people that I look up to as the, the sort of people who were established in the indie comedy scene in Toronto when I started, I look at them all as kind of big brothers and big sisters to me. You know, the people who encourage me, the people who would say, oh yeah, so-and-so told me you're really funny. Or, hey, I saw you do that set the other night and, and you killed me. Those things mean nothing to the person saying them. They are free. And much like hashtag podcast compliments, which I really wanna, I have so many podcast compliments, I don't even know where to begin. It is just nice sometimes to think back on where we've come, our past, where we're going. The other thing I'm reflecting on right now is uh, I, <laughs> I'm i in a state of flux, as I mentioned in the last episode. Uh, things are kind of moving around a little bit, let's say. I'm not really sure what's gonna be happening in the short term, in the long term, in the medium term. I'm trying to just do one day at a time, which in sobriety circles is a very important thing to remember, you know, one day at a time. Uh, And uh, something that keeps coming back to me, another piece of wisdom uh, that somebody said to me once, uh, and I'm not sure if my mom said it or somebody else said it, but at one point someone dropped this little piece of wisdom on me. It's just a very simple phrase, which I have been finding myself saying, repeating, mantra-like over and over again, and it is this. There is no check in the mail, okay? Simple statement, there's no check in the mail. What that means when you unpack it is that, you know, we all get caught up in, know whatever our, our anxieties or our concerns or worries about the future are and sometimes you know we live in this fuzzy beautiful future that's never gonna come to past or we live in this over glamorized past that never really existed as easily and as comfortably as we'd like to remember it you know nostalgia is dangerous but so is looking forward to a time when there's no struggle no heartache no pain There's always going to be suffering in our lives in some way. It is... It is... Inevitable. That we will always have struggle and challenge and pain. However, sometimes we fall into the trap of the wishful, magical thinking where we think, you know, well, I better check the mailbox. Maybe there's a check. Maybe somebody just randomly sent me a check. And um, maybe I'll win the lottery. You know, Maybe someone will call me out of the blue and give me the job I always dreamed of. And the truth, the sad truth that we have to accept if we're going to move on, if we're going to carry on with our daily work and our daily obligations, is that there's no check coming. Nobody is ever going to appear out of the blue and just give you the dream job you've always wanted. Even if you have a friend who does the thing that's your dream job and they're hiring, if you have not put things into place to make sure that you are the first person that comes to mind and the only person that they need for that job, no one's just going to give it to you. And I know this sounds a little bootstrappy because sometimes the universe does magically provide. You know, last year I was hurting. I did not have a lot of money. I did not have a car. I did not have a job. And I checked the mail one day and there was a check in it for uh, several thousands of dollars. And I had gotten awarded a grant that I had almost entirely forgotten I had applied for. Not forgotten, but it had just, it wasn't you know, once I submitted it, it was off my plate, so I stopped worrying about it. If a check had never come, at some point I would have registered mild, you know, um, disappointment. But it was a long shot, so I took it. But the truth is, I did get that grant. But that check didn't come from magic. That check did not come from someone saying, oh, I think Catherine is probably struggling. I should send her several thousands of dollars. No. No. The check came because I t- took the time and I put the work in and I threw my hat and I risked failure and rejection and feeling, you know, I risked the, the potential of feeling unworthy in the future and I submitted the grant and I got it. And it took me a little time to get that project finished and submitted, but I did. I honored my, my, um, promise to the granting body Ontario Arts Council what what big huge holler at Ontario Arts Council they're doing great work over there good 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 work very kind very understanding I was going through some mental health stuff they uh, very very graciously granted me an extension and that's the other thing I want to say so even though no checks coming no checks in the mail if you need help if you're struggling you're not alone You have to communicate your needs to people in order to give them the chance to meet your needs. If you need an extension, you know, if you need a sick day from work, you gotta call your boss, you know, or at least send an email. So it sucks and it's hard, but this kind of thinking motivates me, someone who's lived in uh, poverty before I've been homeless before I've had a cardiac arrest at age 14 and was legally dead was not pronounced dead but I, I should have been and then something in that one fucking doctor said not today Satan and kept going when everybody else was ready to let me go and you know what that person has probably saved hundreds of lives since probably never thinks about it. I think about it. Because I was completely surrendered to whatever happened at that point. Sometimes it is the time to surrender to the things we cannot alter or change or affect in any way. Sometimes we do have to suffer and go through hard times. Sometimes we have to grieve. Sometimes we lose. Sometimes we're rejected. I read an interesting thing that said, if you're having a hard time with rejection, you should go out and try to get 100 no's. So you need to ask the world, all the people in it, the universe, whatever, for 100 things, big and small. And when you've collected 100 no's, if you look back on how you feel about those 100 no's, You will realize that they're inconsequential. Some of them might sting. But you will learn to tolerate distress better and you will learn to tolerate rejection better. Rejection has always been an Achilles heel for me. Of course, then I throw myself into a career in an industry uh, where rejection is de rigueur. And uh, I (laughs) I have to always question Am I doing the right thing? Like, I'm not an actor. Actors, I feel like, take the most heat when it comes to rejection. And sometimes the people who do the best in comedy and acting and stuff are the people who just really lack self-awareness. Because those people... It's like they've got an extra protective shell that kind of lets all the, all the sting bounce off of them and they don't really feel the pain as much for me what what motivates me and what helps me and what reminds me like I will put off writing I've always wanted to be a writer since childhood I've never been really a writer I have written for money and for my own creative work I have been celebrated uh, for pieces of writing I've done But I've never felt like a writer because for me, it is always feels next to impossible to sit down and do the work. And I have a lot of projects I've started and not finished. I have a lot of, um, you know, times where I know I could be writing and I'm not, and I tend to sort of self-flagellate over that a little bit. But the truth is that when I think about the fact that there's no check in the mail, it does motivate me to sit down at the computer and and work on something. It might not be something that's gonna lead to a check in the mail, sometimes it is. But if you don't sit down and do the, do the, you know, if you don't bang the keys, there's zero possibility of getting anything that you want as a writer. So I was, I was motivated last night. I I sat down and I started plunking away at a uh, original pilot script that's been kicking around in my brain for a while. And, uh, you know, just started sort of doing character outlines and um, mapping out the plot structure of, of the episode. It felt good. It felt good to do the work. It's like the pain of not doing the thing you want to be doing is so much worse than the pain of doing it and not doing it well. Or doing it and doing it sloppily or it taking forever. Because the truth is, yes, we do all have something that will fill us up creatively, spiritually, emotionally, whatever that work is. It might not be creative in the sense of being entertainment oriented, but the pain of not doing it is actually an underlying stress that we hold in our bodies all the time. And if you give yourself a set period of amount of time a day, even if it's just 20 minutes a day where even if you just sit there and stare at a blank screen, if that's all you're going to do for 20 minutes, that will ultimately over time lead to you doing the work, showing up for yourself. And that's the thing that I want to talk about next, which is showing up for yourself so much in this life. I feel like I'm giving a sermon. It's just because I'm driving. This is how I talk. Anyone who's ever driven in the car with me is like, oh yeah, you just sermonized at me for 40 minutes while we drove. Uh, (laughs) So much of coming to a place of sobriety, finding my sobriety, keeping it, cherishing it, living it every day has been, sorry, I should say that in Canadian, has been uh <laughs> oh someone got hunted at um to that kind of dark like plague doctors you know they have like a a torture museum um I definitely wanna go and um you know give a piece of my spiritual heart and soul to. The innumerable Holocaust victims that came from the Netherlands. And they have a Holocaust museum, as I mentioned before, the Anne Frank House. Um, I think I'm not going in the springtime, you know, I'm going in the darkest days of the year and I expect it to be damp and cold. I expect to eat delicious Dutch foods, but not their horrible horrible, horrible licorice, which I hate with its aluminum salts or whatever the fuck are in there. Oh my god, that stuff is brutal. Who eats that? Like, it took me a long time to get on board with regular black licorice, but like, the Dutch licorice is like, whoa, you guys are too out of control with the licorice. Like, ugh gives me a shiver just thinking about it but you know what they got stroop waffles they got pan pancakes I'm sure other things will come up a rice table heard about read about a rice table and I guess hallucinogenic mushrooms are illegal there now and hallucinogenic truffles are technically legal but they aren't as potent um so, I don't know if I'm going to do any tripping. I, uh, I, I have done hallucinogens before. I, I try to keep it to once a year or less. I find them to be a very fun spiritual experience. But not the type of thing I would want to do uh, frequently. So, plus if I'm going to do mushrooms, I can do them here. You know what I mean? Like, I find it's a lot more tricky to be in a foreign country than tripping balls. You know, I doubt my sister or cousin are going to want to do any kind of hard drugs. Uh, Not even, why did I say hard drugs? Oh my God. Imagine I started doing heroin. Oh my God. Thank God. Um, the... The cousin, Emily, the cousin, uh, and my sister, I feel like are pretty, you know, not straight edge, but like, you know, they'll have a beer. They're not really party drug people. So I don't think I'm going to wait until I'm all completely 100% alone in a foreign country and then decide to do hallucinogens. I'm not going (coughs) to, oh shit. I'm not gonna have a lot of money. I mean, I have, I'll have have some spending money, enough to get by, but I'm not rolling in the dough. So we might try and do a day trip here and there, but I'm not gonna go too extravagant. You know, I'll hit up some museums as I can. Um, I kinda just, i to be honest, you know, my cousin's coming for a week, and then I'm kind of alone for a week, and then my sister will be back, and then we'll be hanging out for kind of a week. And, um, almost a week. I kind of like the notion of that lone week in the middle there to just reflect and think about things and to be somewhere new. And I don't mind being by myself. In fact, when I went, I went to Cuba by myself about eight, ten years ago, And, you know, I met some cool people and I I had some companions for part of the time. But it was actually kind of nice to travel alone. Because you get to do whatever you want. And if you're tired, you can just go home. So I don't think I'm going to be living it up, like, nightlife-wise in Amsterdam. I'm going to try and find free or cool or artsy things to do. And again, if anyone has any recs, recommendation, pass them along. I am interested. I had something else I wanted to talk about, but I don't know if I know what it is. Could be anything, really. The traffic on the 401 Highway right now is slow and intense, as always, but especially right now. Um, a lot of trucks. A lot of big equipment, vehicles, falls you bus, Safeway Tour bus. It's never a fun drive. <laughs> it's never a fun drive. Sometimes it is actually, I, I won't say that, but uh, they're like in the process of bigging, bigging it up. <laughs> they're bigging it up. The government was like, yo, gee, should we big it up? 401? They were like, "Yeah, man, dig it up." You know, still thinking a lot about Bohemian Rhapsody and uh, Rami Malek. Something uncanny about his appearance in it. I don't know if it's the teeth they gave him, or the jaw, face makeup, or the contact lenses. But there was something about it that wasn't quite right and did not sit well with me and it's not that i wish it wasn't him i just wish he'd looked a little less un he looked unworldly worldly like he looked otherworldly i think is the word i'm looking like he looked like almost halfway to a character from avatar And the thing about Freddie Mercury is yes he had buck teeth but he was like fiercely charismatic and attractive and um, there was an uncanniness about Rami Malek's look that didn't quite sit with me. And they really positioned his sexuality as an antagonist to the married character who is the woman he married and took care of for the rest of her life but who you know He was separated from uh, when he came out to her as being gay. They really played her up as the main female protagonist. And so like literally at one point when he tells her he's gay, I heard straight women in the audience gasp with disappointment. Like what movie are you looking at? Like, What movie did you think you were seeing? And then again, like when he kisses a man for the first time on screen, some groans of disappointment from some straight women in the audience presumptively straight women in the audience and I was just like what is happening Um, so that was just another thought I had about Bohemian Rhapsody it's still sitting with me it's like Queen and Freddie Mercury mean so much to me and I know it, it would have been impossible to make it perfect I'm glad they did make it about the relationship amongst the band members and that how they were each other's sort of chosen family and their difficulties they had. I kind of almost wanted to know more about the other band members, but maybe they didn't want it to be a biopic about the individual people. You get a lot more about Freddie, obviously, than the others, but... I've had a lot of Freddie Mercury dreams. He, he comes to me in, in my sleep quite a bit. And uh, even before the movie came out, I would say semi-frequently visit I have semi-frequent visitations from the spirit of uh, Freddie Mercury he's just a light of my life you know he lights up he illuminates things for me and always touches me in this really important like soul heart space fills me up with joy just a treasure just a human treasure now oh you know what the other thing I was gonna talk about and then I'll let you go Um, so for uh, things that we are weirdly obsessed with I want to turn you on to a YouTube channel called Vivian tries Vivian tries is a woman who gives off the vibe of being like a cool possibly stoner uh, military wife if that makes any sense like I don't know anything about who she is as a person but if I had to wager a guess I would say that Vivian Try is a cr- a current or former military spouse I'm gonna say she's from or lives in Texas and she's Latina maybe none of those things are correct I don't know but I love her. I'm obsessed with her. She tries out things that are as seen on TV products, then she rates them. She not. She's not great. She's gotten better over the years about following instructions, but she never really fully seems to know what's going on. And she does give off a vibe of just being like a little bit stoned. If that's put on, it could be put on. I don't know. Um, I'm gonna try and include some audio uh, if I can from a Vivian tries video because I don't know, there's something about her that's like a little bumbling, but I love it. Like I it's it's very low stimulation, like her shots are very static, this audio is very clean, she has a very even, steady, calming voice, and she'll just like show you like an air fryer or ice cube maker that she bought and then she will you know tell you how it works and if it's a piece of junk mostly they are a piece of junk she'll do some hauls and stuff like that but like for me the main I think the bulk of of her work tends to be in the as seen on TV sort of area very enjoyable I'm mildly obsessed with her but not enough to do any actual research about her just enough to be like I will watch five or ten of her videos while I'm like waiting for my sleeping pill to kick in at night very soothing just a little bit just weird enough to be pleasing in that way that like the most fun and funny things in the are always things that take you in a direction you aren't expecting, that have a weird left turn. People whose brain you can't quite figure out how they work are always the funniest. Like the people who tickle me the most uh, on a humor level are always the ones who who just take a left turn out of nowhere when they're saying something and, and, and it's just this delightful sort of dissonance that they create and she does it you know, I have a lot of things I like to watch on YouTube like that but I would say out of all of them I think Vivian is maybe my favorite currently so check out Vivian Tries oh and then to wrap up I just want, I just want to give out a couple uh, podcast shoutouts you know hashtag podcast compliments I want to try and dole out pod, podcast compliments because it, uh, it means a lot to me people do it hint hint uh wink wink so podcast compliment of the day of the episode is for dina jackson's ego podcast ego pod uh dina jackson is a performer and a producer and a comedy industry juggernaut she uh, has been around the scene for quite a quite a spell and has done a lot of stuff She's been involved in the business side of things, I believe, for a while as well. She has a radio, I mean, podcast, but it's it's—it's—it's it's a podcast, but it's like radio quality. Like, not like this bullshit you're listening to. Like, I believe she records in a literal studio. It sounds so good. I think she has like an actual producer. All the things, you know, when you've really hit the big time. Not that she's hit it big although she has because she's hit it big by making a very 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 good podcast she has guests who are kind of all over there there are people who are spiritual uh leaders people who are social justice leaders people who are performers artists of all stripes they talk about all kinds of different issues on the podcast and every interview takes you in a completely different direction because they all offer you know Very interesting, in depth interviews with people. And, you know, for some of us, I think it is the type of podcast that I like to listen to because, as much as I love a jokey, jokey podcast where people get into, you know, they're just riffing, 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 I like to listen to those when I just need a light listen. But I I like it when someone is able to really craft and blend well the, the jokes and the fun with the, you know, Deeper side of things, and exploring things like spirituality, things like meditation, things like consciousness, things like trauma, um, and actually, um, you know, Dina's podcast is is killing it. It's really—I uh, still have to catch up on the back catalog, which I'm excited to do. But I would encourage you to find Dina, Dina Jackson, D E N A Jackson, spelled the standard way the ego podcast and uh follow you know follow dina on twitter or follow you know um subscribe to her podcast and uh or just download a couple episodes and see where you land with it because i think you will be very pleasantly surprised i was not surprised because i had a feeling that dina was going to deliver the goods and dina did deliver the goods when i finally managed to have a listen. So I wasn't, uh, I didn't have low expectations. So no, sorry, Dina, if you're listening, that didn't. my expectations were, uh, reasonable, reasonably high. Why? Because I had a feeling, I had a good feeling in my gut that this was going to be a podcast for me. And it is, I will continue to listen to it gratefully and I enjoy it. So compliments to Dina, to the pot, ego pod. You're killing it keep up the good work. Oh, shit. There's a, there's a fire engine coming now. I don't know where to go. Oh, they're not coming this way. Thank God. I'm on a ramp, guys. I'm on a ramp. In fact, I don't even know where I am at anymore. Downtown-ish. I'm not really, but... I'm going to do my best. Might have gotten myself lost just now. Fuck. All right. Well, with that, I'm going to let you go because this is a great time to stop doing this. Uh, and thank you for listening. I love you. Please subscribe on iTunes, rate, review. Follow me on Twitter at McCormcorp, M C C O R M C O R P. Please give me compliments. Please give me suggestions of things to do in Amsterdam or books to read topics to discuss if you have any questions if you have any questions or if you have anything you want to suggest to me just send it along and thanks again for listening love you guys bye